The, uh, as a staff, we just completed a Passover dinner a little bit early, since the sun is just setting. And this is also Good Friday, so I'd like to wish all of you a happy Passover and happy Good Friday. And just a reminder that these are holidays that celebrate freedom and the oncoming of uh, resurrection. So it seems very fitting that we're here together coming to greater freedom. I think most of you know that I joined the retreat a little bit late uh, because of a death in my family. And uh, it was a week ago today that my older sister uh, named Judy died. And uh, she was someone who was really special to me and to many people. She had a really big heart, a, a big laugh, and someone who has always been kind to me and who has enriched uh, my life forever. And so I'd like to dedicate uh, the talk tonight to her memory. Jack talked last night about the mystery that we all swim in, the mystery of our existence. And death is such a part of that mystery. It is such a mystery in itself. It shocks me every time that someone close to me dies. How can that person have been here and now not be here? Where, where did they go? As my other sister said when we were at Judy's house, it just doesn't register. It's so hard to comprehend. Who dies? Or what dies? What happens after death? What's this separation of the spirit and the body? How can it be that I will die? And what will that be like? There's a huge mystery, and because of the mystery, there's a sense of fear of the unknown. And so our, our lives as humans are connected with a fear of dying. And it was interesting, there was a survey that was taken some years ago about what people are afraid of in this country. And uh, fear of death came in at number four. I thought that was pretty interesting. Number one was fear of public speaking. <laughs> so. <clears throat> I don't know about you all, but personally, I'd rather be here tonight. <laughs> so maybe to some extent, we're not prepared for death because we're not fully prepared for life, because we don't fully understand what it means to be alive. And I'd like to suggest tonight that death is a mystery that takes place on several layers. And at the core of life and death are mysteries that we will never solve, that we will never understand. There is a mystery intrinsic to existence. I mean, why is there something and not nothing? It's baffling. But I feel that one or two of the sort of outer layers of this mystery that death represents for us can be better understood than they currently are in our culture. Our culture has not given us, I don't feel, the deepest wisdom to understand the issues of birth and death. And so over my time of practice, death is still very much a mystery to me, but a little less so 
than it was in the beginning. And my fear of death is still present, but a bit less so than it was at the beginning. And at times in my life and in my practice, death seems to me sometimes just like changing the channels, just switching to a different frequency. So in the talk this evening, I'd like to talk about unwrapping a little bit of these outer layers of mystery around birth and death. And I'd like to talk about it in terms of three aspects that the Buddha talked about as very central to his teaching and to an understanding of life. And he called these the three characteristics of existence. And he described that all existence, all human existence, is colored by three facts. I think of these as the facts of life for grown-ups. And they are impermanence, suffering, and no self or selflessness. This last is a, a concept that causes the most confusion when we tend to present it in retreat, so I'll leave that for the last. But I want to talk about all three of these aspects tonight. They're often known by the Pali terms that the Buddha uh, talked about them in, of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So we'll talk about each of these. The first of the three is impermanence. And just to give you a sense of the Buddha's own importance that he attached to the concept of impermanence, he said this, foremost among footprints is the elephants. Isn't that a nice line? And you can tell he lived in a little different time than ours. <laughs> foremost among reflections is that on impermanence. Foremost among reflections. The implication is that if there's anything that you want to hold in your mind and turn the mind to from time to time to reflect on and grow in wisdom from, it is the reflection on impermanence of change. And in retreat, it's really one of the most remarkable features of the retreat, as several people have already commented on. Everything in our retreat experience changes and nothing lasts very long. We're crippled by by pain in our back as we sit here on the cushion, we stand up and it goes away. We have a sitting of incredible dullness and drowsiness. And the next period, there's great clarity. And then we rush back into the meditation hall <laughs> only to find great agitation. And then more clarity. And then anger. And so forth. And I hope you don't think that this is going to stop at some point during the week and you're going to land in mindful clarity for the rest of the week. I hate to disappoint you, but probably not going to happen. I asked someone today how their retreat was, and uh, he just looked at me for a minute, and he said, that's a really hard question to answer. You know, how do you single something out from this changing experience to highlight? There's really nothing to highlight. And just to prepare you for your re-entry into the world, a lot of people are going to ask you how your retreat was. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to have the same problem that the fellow had today. And so I just have one recommendation. This is sort of an insider tip for you. Um, all most people want to hear is to hear you say, it was great. <laughs> They'll go away happy, and you don't have to think about it very hard. So.
We usually save that tip for integration day, but I'm giving you some advance warning. In that way, our retreat is kind of a microcosm of our life. We look over our entire world, the entire field of our experience. What lasts? What have you found in your life that lasts? You know, we are so vulnerable as human beings because of this fact of death. Everything that lives is vulnerable to death in any moment. And so out of that vulnerability, we all come to life with a great longing for security, for safety, for finding a place of rest and comfort. And when we grow up as children, we tend to to look for that very much in our parents. And to some extent, as children, parents are necessary to satisfy that. And yet that relationship is probably not a totally satisfactory one for most of us. And certainly by the time we become teenagers, most of us are glad to make the move away from that relationship to more independence. And often it seems that we try to recreate that relationship through our intimate relationship or our marriage, looking for another form of security. And sometimes we have to learn about this tendency the hard way. I came to a meditation retreat a number of years ago and I went for a two-month uh, intensive retreat. And as I entered the retreat, uh, my partner at the time stayed behind because she was getting involved in a different spiritual practice, a different spiritual scene. And uh, I thought as I left and came into the retreat, gosh, I really feel good about this relationship. This relationship is really the bedrock of my life in the world. Bad thought. <laughs> I should have known when I said that to myself, that meant trouble. So, nature set out to prove to me otherwise. I came out of my two-month retreat and I felt very open and very vulnerable. I practiced really intensively. I'd worked really hard to get my sleep down to four hours a night and about 18 hours a day of just sitting and walking and very little time for meals and personal hygiene very uh, effortful retreat. Two months, I came out, I called my partner, only to find that she had become uh, very involved in my time away with a guru. The other spiritual scene that she was involved with centered around this guru. And uh, it was a relationship in which, if I were to be catty, which I don't mind being in this situation. (laughs) I would say there was room in his concept of relationship for only one love, and that was with him. So I felt the, uh, the connection with my partner really fading as I understood the uh, nature of the relationship that she was becoming involved in with this other teacher. And at that time when I began to understand it, I felt like the bottom dropped out of my world. That bedrock that I had been taking for granted dissolved into what it had always been, which was spaciousness. (laughs) And it was very upsetting 
to me. I went through uh, a month or so of incredible turmoil and fear because of the security that I had invested this relationship with in adjusting to this possible change. As it turned out, when I came back home and we had a chance to reconnect, uh, she rethought her relationship to her guru and uh, eventually left him. And I've observed that scene over the years and every single relationship that has come into that scene has broken up. So I felt that my perceptions were accurate and uh, it was not just a case of fantasy on my, on my part. So we look for security to parents, we look to intimate relationship, we look to all the objects that the world provides, money and possessions. You've probably seen those bumper stickers that say, or the license plate holders, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's a very, maybe it's a Bay Area thing, <laughs> but uh, I see those a lot. Or through career, through some kind of status, or title, or power. But in today's economic times, these things are very tenuous. Money and career and status, they can go away overnight. We invest in memories or our anticipations for the future. We look for a lot of security in this body. It seems to be a constant through our life. It's always with us. We look for health. We look for a certainty there. And this is also subject to change. And it, certainly at this time in my life, I'm very aware of the process of aging. And this came to me actually about 10 years ago. I considered myself to be a fairly young man at the time. And I was at a, a, a talk with my wife. And at the end of the talk, she and I were chatting at the back of the hall. And I went away to talk to someone else. And someone who was sitting beside her turned and said, uh, who was that man? She said, what man? And uh, he said, that middle-aged man you were talking to. <laughs> and I was shocked. I, I had a few of these gray hairs back then, but I considered myself really very young. And I sort of added up the years and I thought, oh, I could be halfway there. Okay, middle age was upon me. So I started to deal with my own aging. I have a friend who started to go um, quite bald in his early 20s. And uh, he said for him the hardest thing about it was when he washed his face. Because when he got to his forehead, he didn't know where to stop. <laughs> So there's aging, and in our relation with the body, of course, finally, there's death. The end of aging is death. And that marks the separation from all that we've come to know or depend on. So we look to many things in this world for refuge and for security, but every single one of them is subject to the law of impermanence, is subject to change, and it's just a matter of time. The Tibetans have a formulation of this that they, and they say that impermanence has four ends. The end of birth is death. The end of gathering is separation. The end of accumulation is dispersal. And the end of building is destruction. So in every aspect of our existence, 
as a human being, we're confronted by change. We're confronted by beginnings and by endings. So some of us catch on uh, to this fact and we come to meditation practice. And perhaps in coming to meditation practice, we may be looking again for some ultimate security, for some lasting mental state or place of rest. So we come to a retreat like this, and what do we find? More impermanence. The breath comes and goes. Sounds arise and vanish. Body sensations arise and glimmer and pass away. Feelings succeed one another like the wind. Thoughts come and go in a torrent. And as we become more in touch with our body, even what we thought was solid sometimes can seem to be dissolving, as some of you have reported in interviews. So we find it difficult through our meditation practice to find anything here that lasts also. The Buddha advised his nuns and monks to live very simply and to practice in the middle of nature. It was one of the constants of his advice. He advised them to live in, as the old texts say, remote forests and jungle thickets. So if you can find any of those, highly recommended. To live at the foot of a tree or in a cave. And one of the beautiful things about practicing in nature is that nature is always showing impermanence. That's one of the great gifts of this facility and the closeness of the desert. The wind is always changing. The light is changing. The clouds are coming and going. Animals appear for a moment and then go back into their holes or trees. We see an owl or a tortoise or a snake just for a moment and then it's gone. Other creatures die and leave their bones to become food for others. Living close to nature, we begin to really feel this impermanence right to our bones. It becomes part of us because we realize that we are part of nature. Nature is not a place we go and visit on holiday or a backpacking trip. We discover that nature is within as well as without, and all of nature is characterized by impermanence. Even ideal situations change. One of the beauties of uh, practicing in Asia is that one has the opportunity to live still very close to nature for an extended period of time. And for that reason, I went to Thailand and ordained as a monk and spent a year practicing mostly in two different forest monasteries. The first one that I practiced in was in the north of Thailand near Chiang Mai. And I had what seemed like the perfect situation, really one of the best practice situations I've been in. Because I was a Westerner, I was given the best hut in the monastery. And it was across a stream and then up a path that dead-ended. And the stream was at the base of this uh, beautiful canyon, and the river ran through the bottom of the canyon. From my hut, I couldn't see another person or another hut. And the teacher there didn't speak English, so I was really left on my own just to do my own practice of sitting and walking, which I did day after day for several months. And I thought, this is really the perfect spot. But I had made a commitment to spend another period of practice time at a monastery in the south of Thailand. So I knew that I had to leave 
this place soon. And as time came to leave, I became very clingy. Didn't want to go. But this is just perfect. Then the rains came. <laughs> and when the rains came, the river right outside my hut started to pick up volume. You know, the roar of water started to come day and night. And that was okay for a while, but then the river started to sing a song. And the song it started to sing was uh, Bob Dylan, Subterranean Homesick Blues. <laughs> From an album I had bought 17 years before, I was able to recall every single line of the song. And at that point, I became glad to move to another monastery. But all of our experience in any dimension that we look is just rising and passing. And this is one of the reasons that we invite you to look at your experience with some precision and in some detail, to convince yourself that there's nothing in the whole field of your body and your mind that's static, that's not subject to this law of change. When I went to the other monastery in the south, the, that monastery was called Wat Swan Mok, and the abbot was Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is one of the probably greatest Thai meditation masters of the second half of this century. Uh, he passed away last year, unfortunately. But while we were there, uh, the Westerners had the chance to meet with him once a week. And he spoke quite good English, and he would give us uh, teachings directly in English. And there was, it was a group of just about seven of us Westerners who were there, so we had quite a lot of um, intimate contact with him. And his recommendation, his meditation instructions for us in that period were, were like this. He said, okay, consider one of the senses. Consider the sense of sight. For the sense of sight to arise, there have to be three components. There has to be a visual form, something to see, a person, a thing, an animal. There has to be a functioning sight organ, or the eye. And then their visual consciousness arises as the impact of those two. So in any moment of seeing, there is the visible shape, the sense organ of sight, or the eye, and visual consciousness. These three things in relationship to sight are called the sense bases of seeing, or in Pali it's the ayatanas. That's the sense of sight. The same schema gets replicated for the other five senses, the four senses of the body and the sixth sense of the mind. So we have the senses of seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling. And then in Buddhism, the mind is considered a sixth sense, the cognition of all the mental states, the emotions, the images, perceptions, intention, and so forth. His recommendation to us was that whatever experience we were having, we identify the three sense bases that were connected to that experience and for each of the three sense bases to become aware of four aspects of its nature. Its origin, because everything that exists, exists because of prior conditions. So to reflect on what brought that into existence. It's arising, that is its moment of coming into existence. It's persisting, and then it's passing away. So we had 72 objects, the 18 times four, that we needed to focus on. That was his instruction. And that was the last instruction he gave because I thought he would, he thinks, he think he thought that would keep us busy for the rest of our time there. But that kind of precision is very, very helpful for seeing the thoroughness of change. 
change takes place on the cosmic level and it takes place on the most microscopic level that we can bring our attention to. The beauty of our practice is that we can refine our attention to see that change moment after moment. When we first start to come in touch with this this inevitability of change, we may feel it's a great tragedy. Why can't something beautiful last forever? Why can't that sitting of tremendous clarity and peace and mindfulness continue forever? But actually, it's neither good nor bad. It's just the way things are. It's one of those facts of life. And I was tickled. um, The daughter of a couple of our friends is 14 years old and has always grown up around meditators. Her parents are both meditators. and She's heard the jargon. One of the concepts in meditation and Buddhist circles is this concept of duality, the sense of living as an individual existence. And this 14-year-old girl asked her mother, Mom, is duality good or bad? You can say the same thing about impermanence. Is it good or bad? It just is. It's just a fact. So we see in our meditation very clearly there is nothing to hold on to. And as if we grasp, we'll be disappointed. The Buddha used an analogy of someone who's being swept away down a river. The current is carrying the person down the river, and as they go by the banks, they reach out and grab hold of handfuls of grass, hoping to find something solid. But each handful of grass just comes out of the bank in their hands, and the current continues to sweep them away. He says, that's what it's like for us grasping onto the things of this world. One teacher said that this insight is kind of like the experience of jumping out of an airplane and finding that you don't have a parachute on. There can be a sense of falling, falling through these phenomena that keep changing and not being able to hold to any of them as you go by. We're going to leave you hanging there for a moment, but I'll pick up that analogy later. The second of the aspects of existence the Buddha talked about is the truth of suffering, the fact of suffering. And basically, what he said is we suffer because we keep holding on. We keep looking for something to grasp in the middle of this world of change. And it can happen in a couple of ways. If I pick something up, I may get a temporary satisfaction from it. But if I have held on to it out of fear, if I've held on to it out of security, what always accompanies my holding? Doesn't the holding just perpetuate the fear? Because I'm always afraid of its loss, and with its loss is the return of the fear. In time, it will change. Or we grasp things that are inherently painful, difficult states of mind, states of anger, sadness, fear, regret. We can see this in our meditations. If we come in and we have a painful sitting, we suffer already. If we come in and we have a pleasant sitting, we may want to repeat it. Now, I'm sure no one here has had that experience, but some people do. And if we want to repeat it, then the next time we sit, we suffer if it's not like that. The Thai teacher Ajahn Chah 
whom Jack mentioned, talk about this as grabbing a snake. He said, if you grab it at the end with the fangs, it bites you and you suffer. That's grabbing the pain directly. But if you grab the tail, then the head swings around and bites you. That's grabbing the pleasure. Either way, the grabbing leads to trouble. The Pali term for suffering is dukkha. It's usually translated as suffering, but it had a broader range of meaning in that time. And it meant not just direct suffering, but in a way you could say the unsatisfactory nature of phenomena, the unreliable nature of phenomena, because none of them can provide what we're really looking for, which is a lasting peace and a lasting happiness. Suzuki Roshi, a Zen master, put it this way, without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of this truth. The teaching of the cause of suffering and the teaching that everything changes are two sides of one coin. So until we learn to let go completely, until we are really completely free of clinging, suffering is an inevitable part of life. It's just one of our realities. As we meditate, we open more and more to the wholesome states of mind, of mindfulness and concentration, of compassion and joy and metta. But in that opening, we also open more and more deeply to suffering, to the pain of life. This is a quote from an Indian teacher named Nisargadatta Maharaj. He worked in dialogue with people, and this is a dialogue that he had with a Westerner. Maharaj said, the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it is acceptable, it is pleasant. If it is not acceptable, it is painful. And the questioner said, pain is not acceptable. And Maharaj said, why not? Did you ever try? Do try, and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. The Buddha talked about this fact of change and suffering as an inspiration for his practice when he was still seeking, when he was still the Bodhisattva. He put it this way, suppose that I, who am subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is also subject to decay and death, would that be for my benefit and welfare? His answer was no. He said, but suppose that I, who am subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is beyond death, in the deathless, would that be for my benefit and welfare? And he said, yes. And that really became the thrust of his practice, to discover that which is beyond death, that which is the deathless. 
The third of the characteristics of existence that the Buddha talked about is what he called anatta, which we translate as no self or selflessness. And this is a little bit naughty, so I'm not going to go into it so deeply. But I'll just say that it's a root question of our meditation, the question of who am I or what am I? What is this thing I call myself? And most of our thoughts and feelings and actions revolve around this central concept of I, but do we really know what it is? And let me just ask a couple of questions. I want to take a look at how we use the language around I and ask you a couple of questions. I don't think they'll be too difficult. I want to ask you, how tall are you? And what color are your eyes? Everybody get those? Okay, good. Now, when I ask how tall are you, you know, I would answer I'm five feet ten. What does that really mean, I'm five feet ten? Are my thoughts five feet ten? Is my happiness five feet ten? We're really, I'm really saying when I answer that, the body is five feet ten, and I am the body, right? So here we're identifying I as body. Okay, I'm the body. If that's true, suppose you cut your hair and it falls on the floor. Is that you lying on the floor? Hmm. Okay, what about the other question? What color are your eyes? I'd say my eyes are brown. This is a little different. Now I am someone who has eyes. I have brown eyes. Hmm, they're my eyes. Well, now I seems to be someone who stands apart from the body and owns it. I'm the owner of the body. We do the same thing with feelings. I could ask you, how are you? And you'd say, I'm happy or I'm sad. So, are you your mind? Or I could say, what are your feelings in this moment? You'd say, well, I'm dealing with my feelings of happiness or fear or whatever. So, are you something separate that owns those feelings? This is interesting. Sometimes we feel ourselves to be mostly an observer. You know, we're sort of located in this space in the center of our head behind the eyes, and we kind of collect information through these two sense organs that work kind of like a periscope, you know, that stick out and gather information and send the data back to the real self, who's the observer. So is that what you are? Are you the observer that's in the middle of your head? But have you ever looked there? to try to find you there. It's all very curious. And the more we look, the less we find. And so what it points to is that although we think that we know what this I is, when we look for it, nothing there. Nothing there. And the Buddha said that this sense of I is just a fleeting sense. It's just something that arises in the moment, but there is no solid entity called I. There is no one to whom all this is happening. There is no owner of this body and mind and of this consciousness. And similarly, all the things we experience that we call mine, there's no owner, so they're not really mine. We experience a pain and we think, my knee. We experience a thought and we think, my thought. Misleading. When we see clearly, we just see pain. 
We see anger. We hear sound. We see sight. We, hear, we see thought. The my is extra. The I is extra. So what's the true nature of the world? What are things really like? The Buddha talked about the truth of impermanence, suffering, and non-self. And he, he, he put it in those ways because we tend to see in terms of permanence, happiness, and self. He's trying to correct a misperception, our misperception of the world. When we begin to see in terms of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and no self, we start to see things more as they are. And in doing that, there's a degree of freedom that comes. But it's not the final freedom. It's not the, the last or greatest freedom possible. These three characteristics are really just doorways for seeing more deeply what our true nature is, how we're really put together. They encourage us to let go, not to hold so tight. And as we let go, we can inquire into that experience. So in this very moment, in any moment, what is your experience when nothing is being taken hold of? When there's no clinging to body sensations or sounds, to sights, to thoughts, to feelings, to breath. When there's no clinging anywhere as I or mine, what is your experience? What is left when clinging goes? And we start to see that as the objects come and go in our field of experience, what remains constant is our capacity for awareness. Over the course of these days, you've had so many different experiences. If you look at the thread that links them all together, don't you find that there's a thread of awareness through all of them? Suzuki Roshi talked about this capacity for awareness as what he called big mind. This vast and limitless space of awareness in which all the objects of the world are arising and passing. It's empty, like space is, but it also has the capacity to cognize, to recognize. This was brought home to me in a really direct way. One of the interesting things about being a monk is that you're allowed to observe autopsies. Traditionally, in the Buddhist time, the meditation was on uh, funeral grounds, charnel grounds, where bodies were left to decompose and decay. And part of the training of a monk or a nun was considered to be to sit with those bodies and observe their decomposition. Today, monks are encouraged to observe autopsies. And uh, when I was spending time in Bangkok, I had the chance to do this at one of the hospitals in the center of Bangkok. And it was extraordinary. It had a very um, profound impact on my understanding. I walked out of about an hour and a half of watching two or three different autopsies, which I had never seen before. I had never even seen a dead body up close. And I walked out into the street, and as I was waiting for the bus, I was watching the people pass by on the sidewalk by this big parade ground in Bangkok. 
and I saw them entirely differently. I didn't see any solid personality there. I saw walking corpses. I saw corpses that were animated just with this spark of awareness, the spark of spirit. And when I thought about it afterwards and tried to understand what I had seen, what I felt I had seen was what we really are is this sensing organism with memory. When we come fully into the present moment, we are just alive to each moment of sense impression. Seen in this way, we start to see that that spirit, whatever we want to call it, that brightness, that luminosity that shines through each other's eyes, that luminosity in us, holds the entire world. And in that luminosity that holds everything, we recognize a new relationship to life. We recognize that we are interconnected with everything that is. Thich Nhat Hanh's word for this is interbeing. That world is our reality. We are that world. Just as I am your reality now as I speak, you are my reality as I speak to you. And in this, the division between what we consider to be self and what we consider to be other starts to break down. There's an image from the Huayan school of Buddhism, a Chinese school, called the Jewel Net of Indra. And the image is that the universe is a vast net connected by strands throughout the entire universe. At each intersection of two strands, there's a gem. And each gem is different. Some are diamonds, some are emeralds, some are rubies, some are big, some are small. But each gem has the capacity of reflecting all the other gems on the net. Each gem reflects the totality of the universe. And this is a description of our situation. Each of us holds the cosmos. And in that holding, we are the cosmos. We are the entire universe, each one of us. That sort of interpenetration wouldn't be possible if there was anything solid in us. It would put up a barrier. It would put up an opacity. We can interpenetrate because we're not solid. The Diamond Sutra put it this way. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world. Like a star at dawn, like a bubble in a stream, like a flickering lamp, like a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a mirage, a dream. So as we sense this lack of solidity, we find we've jumped out of the plane, we don't have a parachute, but we start to realize there isn't any ground either. There's nowhere to crash. And so we can let go. We can trust in our flight. We can trust in that unfolding. And we start to see that what there really is is the constancy of our big mind, this luminous emptiness that holds the universe, that holds all phenomena. And it holds the arising and passing of all that is. 
this is our reality, this luminous emptiness and the 10,000 phenomena. And in the middle of all that vastness, we find birth and death. But birth and death aren't the whole show. They're only a part. They're just a part of the comings and the goings within that vastness. And that vastness itself is beyond birth and death. That vastness is undying and contains all the comings and goings. And this is the greatest mystery, that vastness and how it is untouched by all the coming and going. I'd like to conclude with a poem. It's called The Snowstorm. And it's by Lauren Isley, a naturalist. It's a little bit long. It's two pages. And so if you'd like to get comfortable in order to listen, please do. It is the first and last snows, especially the last, that blind us most, Thoreau once said. And I wonder what he possibly could have been thinking, since snow is always with us and keeps falling in its proper season, the generations accepting it without first or last, save perhaps this. There is a single snow which a child stores in his memory, the first snow when he falls in a drift, the first snow that reveals secrets, like the flake on his sleeve, always to be remembered because it brought knowledge of crystalline perfection, infinite diversity to be tasted with his own salt tears, the immeasurable prodigality of the universal worlds in which we are lost, the first and blinding snow of childhood. Second, the view from the farm window, the last, with the black guest waiting at the door, and outside, falling and falling, across corn shocks, wheat stubble, plow land, the whiteness of the void. Lucretius must have so seen his atoms, created out of them a world, A wind whipped the flakes aside, perhaps, a snow flurry that conceived a farmhouse kitchen and a stove made fields. Look, can you say I am not composed of snowflakes? My eyes are filled with them. They are falling faster now. Suppose I go outside and join them. Could you say that I was even here? No, no. The first blindness is to see the ultimate minute perfection. That is the illusion of the water drop. The second is to believe the black guest at the door. My friend, there is only the blindness of a million years of snowfall. And you and I, wraiths, wraiths, discoursing as we fall. Do not bother to throw up the window. Snow is already blowing. The room is disassembled. Our substance, the room's substance, is snowflakes. 
We are falling apart now. We have re-entered the eternal storm. Let's sit for just a minute. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Yakka Valley on April 14, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.